You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. So we're here at the PRSA International Conference 2009 in San Diego with Gary Goldhammer. He is a digital strategist at Edelman, and I'm pleased to have him with me on this podcast. Thanks, Eric. Really good to be here. So uh, what does a digital strategist do? Where do you start? If you're brought into a company and they say, hey, we need a digital strategy, what's step one? Well, I think step one is to talk to companies about uh, their business strategy and their business goals, and how you can apply digital and all forms of media to, to achieve those. I think too often um, we go into companies and talk about their marketing goal, their PR goal, but we're not looking at how that's tying back to sales and tying back to really what they want to get done. And I think if you look in the digital space, there's a lot you can do with driving that strategy and driving that creative by listening to the conversation that's happening online, doing that research, finding out what insights you're drawing from, from the audience, and then building your strategies around that. And I think from there, you can expand into a fully integrated program. Of course, digital is a key part of. So, so let me ask you the, uh, the question that no one ever asks or discusses. Well, let's do it, yeah. Because, because we all talk about what you can do with digital media. Mm-hmm. What can't you do? That's a good question. Very good. I, I, I think there's very little that you can't do. I think what you can't do is you can't uh, you know, disclose proprietary information that your shareholders will get pissed off about. I think there's a lot of talk about uh, you know, transparency. And I, I think that transparency only goes so far, especially when dealing with public companies and, and, and regulated industries like healthcare and, and other things where you have to be a little bit more careful um, about what you're doing. But I think authenticity is always possible and it's always relevant to use that through digital. You know, be honest about what you can and like you said, be honest about what you can't do, what you can't talk about. So let's talk, say for example, a public company mm-hmm. or a regulated company. Mm-hmm. What would be some of the pitfalls that you would look to avoid if you were building a digital strategy for them? Well, in the example of healthcare, there's actually a uh, debate that's going to be going on in a couple of weeks here at the FDA where the FDA is going to be looking at how social media is being used in the industry overall and one of the big issues there is adverse event reporting so for example if you have a facebook page and you're a pharmaceutical company and people post on there that they had a bad experience you're then required to report that um that experience so i think it's very important to set up the guardrails ahead of time before you engage in a strategy i think j and j has done this well um gsk has done this where you really say the rules of this is what you can and, and can't talk about and if someone brings up something that is not on topic, you just you know, move it off to another, um, another place or lo- location. But I think the thing that's really interesting is that even if you're not, don't have a Facebook page or don't have a Twitter page as a pharmaceutical or healthcare company, if you're actually listening and engaging in the conversation or even just listening and monitoring, you still may be liable to report adverse events. So there's a, there's a whole issue that's going to be happening here about what is the level of liability that companies will have, even just listening to what's happening online. You know, I did an interview three weeks ago with um, a couple of guys who worked at the SEC. One was the former director of corporate finance there. His name's Brian Lane. He's now a partner at Gibson Dunn. Mm -hmm. And then he he was joined on the call by a guy by the name of Brock Romanak, who does this blog called thecorporatecouncil.net. 
And I talked to him about a new um, guidance that was issued by the SEC about the use of company websites to satisfy regulation fair disclosure. And one of the things he said to me, one of the things I got out of the interview that was really interesting, and I'd like to get your opinion on sure. it. You know, we were talking about the, the, the concept of selective disclosure, this idea that, you know, it's, it would be unfair if you were a publicly traded company to tip off one, one person about news that could affect your trading value before someone else. So that's why they have this mandate where you have to non-selectively disclose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, he was talking to me about blogs. <clears throat> and uh, what he said was essentially, you know, non-selective engagement translates into I mean, non-selective disclosure translates into non-selective engagement in social media. And here's the example he gave. He said, you know, if I had a blog and um, it was a CEO blog and it was on the company's website and someone came onto the blog and left a comment and said, the CFO's a crook. And the CEO got onto the blog and responded, no, 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 he's not a crook. He's a good guy and, and, and you know, went about their business. And then... Five or six months later, the CEO goes to Bora Bora, and someone leaves a comment on the CEO's blog saying, the CEO's a crook. And there's no response for eight or nine days because the guy's on vacation. He said, you know, you have a legal duty to update. Essentially, once you hang out a shingle in a social media channel, if you keep it up to date once, you've got to keep it up to date all the time. And, and I wonder, I mean, do you... Do you think that holds true? And the other question I have, and this is something he sort of alluded to but didn't really hammer home. He said, you know, if the blog lives on your own domain.com, that may actually be more of a bigger responsibility than it li- if it lived on a third-party social media site like Blogger. Because if it lived on the third-party site, it's not as closely aligned and you may have better legal defense. I don't know. Any opinions on this? Any experience with this? Yeah, I think it's interesting that debate about uh, where, th- where things sit and, and, and where they're owned. You know, is, is Google liable for uh, things that people find and search on, on, on Google? And I think, you know, I guess the, the big answer to that is it, it lives everywhere. You know, you can put something on a blog. It could be hosted in your domain. But if someone tweets it, now it lives on Twitter. If someone puts it on a Facebook update, now it lives on Facebook. You know, if someone puts it in a forum, now it's in a forum. If someone emails it, now it's in an email stream. So it's, it's, it's everywhere. So, it doesn't, so whether, whether you're hosting it or not, um, you know, it's, it's, it's still, you know, it's, it's still out wherever people are, 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 are interacting. So I don't, I don't know if it makes any more or less liable, you know, I, I, that whether, whether it's on your platform or another, uh, or another platform. Um, as regarding engagement, I think it's just a general good rule to continue that engagement regardless. Whether you're legally required to or not, I think it's, it shows that you actually do care about the conversation and what's happening. So I always, you know, tell people if they're going to start a blog and, and they're going to, you know, post articles and they're going to, you know, respond to comments that they keep that going this is a conversation not a campaign it doesn't go up for 12 weeks and come, then come then come back down and while you do have certain ebbs and flows in the conversation um, and, and, and maybe the intensity of how much you're blogging or how much you're, you're, you're interacting you still have to be, be part of that so again I'm, I'm going to look at it whether it's a legal requirement I think it's just a, a, a social requirement frankly, if you're going to engage in social media, that you're in, it, you're in it for the long term and you should be continually monitoring and engaging those quotes, whether it's, you know, six days after the comment was made or six months, you know, you, you still have to, you know, be there and be engaged. There are so many channels to choose from. <clears throat> there's the web, there's email, there's search engine optimization, there's blogs, there's podcasts, there's social networks, there's social search, there's social bookmarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's microblogs. 
Um, and obviously everyone's excited about Facebook and Twitter and the potential of these channels. Mm -hmm. But I mean, are they for everybody? And how do you map specific objectives to channels, to social media communications channels? How do you decide which channel is right for an organization? Yeah, well, number one is back to listening, uh, where your audience is, right? I mean, obviously, if your audience is going to be as on Twitter, you want to be there as well. If they're not, then why bother? You know, does your audience use photos and video or they prefer to use text and prefer, to, prefer blogging? So we have to do the research to find out where the audiences are interacting, where they like to gather, and then where we should join those conversations and what makes sense. And also using the, the medium for the appropriate um, for the appropriate message. I, I think, though, in a certain sense, you know, we try to separate these things into channels as if they're disparate types of entities. And, you know, if, when you can connect your Twitter feed to your Facebook, are they a disparate entity? And there's some argument over, well, should I connect Twitter to Facebook? Because maybe what I say on Twitter should be more real-time news and sharing with the world, where Facebook should be more for my, more for my friends. I think it's a fair argument, you know, when you're mixing and matching. But I, th I, th I, think, I think overall, when you look at a strategy, you know, channels are important. Um, but channels focus focus on the on the output, right? Whatever's on the channel is what you're outputting. What we don't focus on is is the input. What is the engagement? What is the conversation? You know, those are the things which that, that that the strategy should be built around. So, you know, what do we want to say? Who do we want to say it to? What is that core idea that you want to get across? And then, what's the appropriate place to to go through it? I think too often we say, "I want a Twitter strategy. I want a Facebook strategy." It's like, no, you want a communication strategy. So, one of the things um, I can remember pre-internet. Uh, when, uh, you know, we used to do segmented communications. We'd create communications for specific audiences. And it seems to me the Internet really sort of frustrates the idea of segmented communications mm -hmm. because you don't really know who's going to go to the blog. It could be a disgruntled employee, could be mm -hmm. a prospective customer, could be a competitor, could be a regulator. You just have no idea, right? right? So uh, does, does it make sense to use... Facebook for one audience and Twitter for another, or is it potentially damning to your reputation? I don't think it's potentially damning. I think it's, again, about being open about what it's for. Facebook is good for certain things, and Twitter's good for, for certain things. So as a company, can you have a Facebook page where maybe you're doing more um, you know, engaging with the, with the community and maybe doing some more you know, contests and those types of programs, as well as have a Twitter feed that's really about your corporate news and industry, you know, thought leadership or something. I think those are, are compatible interests. Uh, I, th I think you could also have, you know, Twitter channels that are maybe just focused on, you know, selling um, product. You know, you know, Dell, for example, sells, you know, computers on their outlet, but they also have, you know, conversation on other channels. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's mutually, um, it's mutually exclusive. I do think you, every audience is different. Every company is different. How they use it is different. I, I, I do agree that, you know, just basically taking, for example, a blog post and then, you know, tweeting the link to it and putting the link to it in the Facebook update and putting it on the blog, you know, it, it, it does get a bit you know, redundant. It just shows you really are using them as a broadcast channel. You're really just trying to push your stuff, stuff out versus, these are, versus treating them as places where my audience is and there's certain things my audience, audience wants in certain places versus others. So let me ask you something. Let's say, for example, I am a controversial organization and I'm dealing with controversy that I'm trying to engage in that controversy in social media to try to take neutral opinions and move them positive and negative opinions mm -hmm. and move them neutral. And what I do is I launch a Facebook fan page mm -hmm. and I engage exclusively the controversy on the Facebook fan page, but not at my own domain. Could I be seen as a hypocrite? Honestly, he was a hypocrite. I don't know why, though, you wouldn't want to um, engage them on your own own domain. I mean, I think. Well, let's say know, I'm afraid someone uh, in the organization yeah. is afraid mm -hmm. that if we that if we 
engage the conversation at our own domain, we may elevate that conversation to a level that's visible to people who may not have had visibility into the social media conversation. Yeah. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I could see that being, you know, leveled as a claim. Right. And and it's interesting because now we're back to, you know, where we say it is makes a difference as opposed to what what we're what we're saying. And if you're saying it on Facebook, if you're engaging there, it's going to get out to other places. You know, so it's not like you're going to I'm just going to deal with this on Facebook and I'm going to be able to, you know, have make sure that controversy that that criticism, whatever is happening, isn't going to go go somewhere else. Um, You know, I I, I think we just have to kind of get get around that feeling that we can kind of hold stuff in the genie's bottle anymore. And that's really just not it's just not the case. I, I, I you know there, there are some clients, and I think this is a good rule of thumb. If something happens, for example, on a blog, there's a controversy that happens, um, you know, over your over your product or something you, your executive said or, or something. You, know, you don't want to necessarily have that argument in. The, the comment stream on someone's on someone's blog, you know, argu- argument is okay if it's healthy, but quarreling doesn't really get you anywhere. So I think you know, at, at some point, if that happens, you do want to direct them back to your homepage and say, look, here's the information, here's the link to you know our our statement on this, versus having that argument in the actual um, you know blog itself. But I think you you, st- you, you just can't avoid it. So I, so trying to um, you know say, well, I'm just going to have it over here. And not over there. I think I think it would look a bit hypocritical. I think it would look a bit like you're trying to hide something. And, and I think it's always better to be, you know, the, the more open. And I think today, especially, you know, transparency is objectivity. So the more transparent you are, the more objective people feel you feel you are. So. You know, I can remember um, when we first got the World Wide Web. And me too. I'm really old. And I can remember when the web was not inherently social. Mm-hmm. Um, But obviously social media now is what's getting all the attention and Mm -hmm. most of the people are discussing. Is all media social? I think all media is social. I I think if you look at what happened with with Motrin, for example, an ad that was put up online that was not intended to be a piece of conversation. But obviously people saw the ad and they took it and talked about it. Um, Motrin was not ready for the fact that that media, even though it was a, a commercial or a quote a piece for offline, is always online. You know, it's something that appears in a newspaper, you know, can appear online. A magazine article can be discussed. So media in general is shareable. I will agree with that. You know, all media today is has the ability to be shared. The ability to make it social is up to, is is up to people. So people are the ones that make it social. But I think if you think about how we interact with media these days and how everything is connected you know you could easily make the argument that you know pr is social marketing is social advertising is social customer service is social search is social so everything has that aspect so if all media is social then there really is no social media it just is there's paid media there's earned media there's owned media but to break off social to something separate really takes it to a different place I mean, if, if you do if you break it off as something separate you really are looking at it from the perspective of technology of that this is a platform but if you look at it from the perspective of media being social well, then you're looking at it from a perspective of engagement, of actually talking to people, of actually you know inputs and outputs back and forth, and that's where I think that people we need to focus. We fo- not social media, but media being social and how we can use that. In your experience as a uh, digital strategist for Edelman, what is the most common mistake you see organizations make? Um, I, don't th- I, I don't think anyone's making any mistakes necessarily. I think the mistake most people make is that they one don't want to jump in 
and at least do a pilot program and, and, and try something. I think the other mistake they make is that they look at, again, if we use the term social media, purely as a channel. They look at it as, here's another, here's another place we can broadcast our message. And that's, that's starting off in the wrong place. So they say, for example, let's start a, a blog and put our press releases on, on, on the blog. Or let's start a Twitter channel and just post up information there. That's, I think anything that company will do to start, to get their feet wet, to understand it, is important. But I think the number one thing I advise them is that before you do anything externally, do it internally. You know, you use 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 it inside. You know, start a private Facebook group among your your your, your team or your business unit and play around with it. Use the tools, use the technology. Set up set up Twitter. You know, go get a Facebook page. I think if people inside companies start using the tools and really understand the interactions and the power of it, then the light goes off and says, hmm, maybe I can use this for my business now, and maybe I can talk to my customers about this. So, so I think that's the number one thing I would say. And I think too many jump in before, you know, before trying it themselves, they they jump in and try to do it for others. Let's talk for a minute about the trust barometer. I know, obviously, it's been out for a while. I haven't heard of that. What is that? The uh, Edelman trust barometer. <laughs> oh, that one, right. Yeah, right, right, right. Mm. Um, so, first of all, the 2010, I guess, will come out. Uh, any idea, any visibility on when we should expect the 2010 trust barometer? It's usually earlier in the year, so I'm not exactly sure. I think it's usually like the February, March time frame. I'm not sure. One of the things I noticed about last mm-hmm. year's uh, barometer was when they looked at most trusted sources, mm-hmm. believe it or not, business magazines we're up at the top. Mm-hmm. Now, this is pre-economic meltdown. Uh, this is this is you know pre um, the the stock market you know tumble and, and the problems that we had that uh, led mm-hmm. to the economic stimulus plan by the current administration. Uh, but it was interesting to me because you know pretty much every other mainstream channel was uh, no longer as influential as people like yourself and mm-hmm. companies. But business magazines held tough. And I remember, uh, I think a week ago, I was, in, uh, I was reading David Carr, who writes um, on the Monday business section of the New York Times. He's been a guest on this podcast a couple of times. We'll have a link to his uh, interview in the show notes. And his article, he writes about media and the impact of the, net, the web and technology on the media business. And he said um, that uh, business magazines were just taking a beating, that they had been laying off uh, um, companies, that Business Week sold for uh, pennies on the dollar. And, uh, and I wonder, do you think that business magazines will be as trusted in 2010 as we saw them in, in 2009? I, I, I think in general people, yes. I mean, I... I I, I, I definitely think that when you look at those niche publications, you know, I think people in, in a time of crisis, in a time of uncertainty, you go to a place where you feel like you want to have someone who really knows what they're doing. So I think you're going to trust, you know, a magazine that really focuses on that um, in a very specific niche than it would more as as more of a of a generalist. Um, you know, I, I so so I, I I do see that. I think what's what's interesting, and you're right, you know, the the whole people like me and, and that is is not as strong as it um, as it was as it was before. But I think you know what's interesting to me is what's going to happen to journalism in general. You know, next year. You know, we talk about you know all the layoffs. You know, AP lay, laying off several hundred people, and you know, political hiring people. So you're seeing the shift, you know, happening in in, in these in these types of in these types of things. So I I, I personally think you know people people tr- will have more trust in it because um, I think niche is going to be important next year, and I think local is going to be important. I think you're going to see local news, local papers, community really being trusted and actually thrive next year. 
and I think you're going to see the kind of mid-sized papers continue to, to wane off and, and drop. So I think people, they tend to, in time of crisis, tend to kind of close in and, and kind of, you know, um, and, uh, and cocoon, so to speak. And I think they're going to really look for those real niche avenues and those, those local types of um, re- reporting that, that, that they feel that they can trust because it's closer to them and closer to what they care about. Uh, where can we find you on Twitter? Um, G24KHAMR. And do you have a blog or any uh, site you want to mention? I do, uh, Below the Fold. I've been blogging at Below the Fold for over five years, and it's a blog about uh, the convergence of journalism and new media. So uh, um, belowthefold.typepad.com. So there you go. Gary Goldhammer, digital strategist at Edelman. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Great to be on. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.